now. Give online at kpfk.org or call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. We're in this together. Do your part. Help keep KPFK alive. 818-985-5735. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Will Israel storm one, a city of 1.4 million city of refugees? LA labor rally for Palestine. Plastic bag ban is ineffective. AI cars under attack. Biden dementia, a commentary by Caitlin Johnston. The Tucker Carlson's Putin interview and the mainstream media's jealous reactions. People's appeal for Donbass to the UN Security Council. And news from outside the NATO bubble. All this and more coming up. Good evening, I'm Hunter Green. As Israel, as Israel is preparing to storm Rafah in the south of Gaza, the situation in the Middle East keeps escalating. After another night of bombing and heavy civilian casualties, former U.S. ally Saudi Arabia has warned Israel and its allies that, quote, they will face very serious repercussions if Israel goes through with a planned ground offensive in the city of Rafah which is Gaza's last refuge for civilians who have been displaced by the ongoing war. 1.4 million Palestinians have followed Israel's directives and left their homes to seek supposed safety in the very city that is now being targeted by Israel. The statement came one day after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ordered his military to drive civilians out of Rafah as commanders prepare to attack the city. It is unclear where they are supposed to go to, since the north of Gaza has been razed to the ground and the Egyptian border to the south is closed. Gazan authorities have stated that Israeli tactics are an effort to depopulate Gaza in order to settle it with Israelis. According to Al Jazeera, holding out in Rafah is the last stand of Gazans to keep their homeland. Netanyahu has rejected international calls for a ceasefire and has insisted on, quote, total victory over Hamas. More than 28,000 people have been killed in Gaza since the war began, 
according to the Hamas-run health authorities. The UN has reported that 85% of the population has been displaced from their homes, and 570,000 Gazans are starving. At every turn, Western corporate media has used distortions, linguistic manipulation, and outright lies to mislead its audiences on the truth about what's occurring in Gaza. It does not get lower than playing with statistics in order to downplay what the highest judicial body on earth has ruled is plausibly a genocide, or what UN aid chief Martin Griffiths has called the, quote, the worst ever humanitarian crisis. On Saturday, the Labor for Palestine rally was held in L.A. in support of an immediate permanent ceasefire, an end to the state, an end to the siege on Gaza, an end to the illegal occupation, and for a free Palestine. Workers, community members, and organizers marched in solidarity with the people of Palestine against the genocide they are facing at the hands of the Israeli occupation. Peter Rachipio spoke to the participants. Uh, my name is Jose Francisco Negret. I'm in Teamster Local 952 and Teamster Mobilized. Within the Teamster, there is a member that spoke to uh, the general president when he was at Local 396 uh, last month, and he asked him about uh, the uh, resolution, the ceasefire resolution. And according to the general president, he said they're working on it. So on that end, the general president says he's working on some sort of resolution. Do I believe them? No. And I am also part of Teams to Mobilize. Teams to Mobilize have came out with our own statement concerning uh, what's happening in Gaza, what's happening in the West Bank and Palestine. We're going to have a general membership meeting next week, and we're going to bring up what other members have, have done in their local. I know there's a sister in uh, Georgia, local 728, that is going to bring up a resolution at her local. But it's an upward fight when your union is reactionary because they have invested in Israeli bonds. So we're unfortunately investing in, in genocide right now. So, But I don't look into the leadership for inspiration. I look to, to my fellow workers and other workers and other unions that are fighting for, for Palestine, are fighting for a just society, for a worker society. There's some teams that are mobilized. I went to the uh, Teams for Democratic Union Convention, TDU known by their acronym, and they presented a resolution. They talked about, what well, we wanted a ceasefire, a divestment in Israeli bonds, a stop of U.S. funding of genocide. But unfortunately, TDU is not a political organization, so anything political, they don't want no part of, so they ended up tabling that resolution. But they had an internal steering committee meeting, but we still don't know what happened with that resolution. Most likely that resolution just died on arrival because they don't want to take a political stand. But a union is a political institution by its nature, by its creation. So everything we do has a political meaning. You have to take a political stand. That's why I'm very uh, happy that Teamster Mobilize takes a political stance because we can't stay silent and, and just let an atrocity happen. As, as part of Teamster Mobilize, as myself too, I'm disgusted that the general president met with Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump is no friend of labor. Donald Trump is no friend of immigrants. Donald Trump is no friend of Palestine. So to meet with, meet with him, it was a smack to the face of all of the rank and file, you know. Last year, around this time, our general president was getting heralded as this great militant. A year later, look what, look what happened. 
two meanings with a uh, fascist, racist, rapist. It's just, just disgusting that we had a meet with them. It's disgusting that Rank and Fala had a meet with them to actually kind of give it a, some sort of dog and pony show to to meet with them, you know, for, for in, to endorse him. And then what was kind of disgusting was seeing him have a uh, press conference with the Teamster flags right there and on the Teamster podium right in front of him. You know, that it was just, it, it gave out the wrong message and we got played by a man, master manipulator. It's, just, it's a pretty disgusting time right now. This uh, Teamsters Mobilized member, Edgar Esquivel, wrote an article critical of Sean O'Brien, and he's been brought up on disciplinary charges since then. Uh, have you heard about that? Yes, they passed. Uh, they were passing a, uh, a petition <laughs> at the local meeting, at the local uh, general membership meeting last month, to bring him up on charges. What are the charges that he's brought up for? Nobody knows, you know? So it's unfortunately, now you've just seen the... The retaliation from the IBT, if you speak out, that you're going to get some sort of backlash, you know, and it's unfortunate. There has to be union democracy, whether whether you like it or not, there has to be union democracy. Well, we're going to have a general membership meeting next week. So if you go on our social media accounts, IG, Teamster Mobilize, uh, Twitter, X, Teamster Mobilize, but MBLZ, you could find some more information. We're still working around Palestine. You know, unfortunately, it's an uphill fight when your your union and your local unions are reactionary. But we have to keep going and we have to bring union democracy. Just because they say we're being transparent is they're, they're actually being transparent. Saying one thing and doing the other, you could talk about transparency. But if you're not being transparent, it's just smoke and mirrors that you're giving us. Have they made any public statements at all the Teamsters leadership about Palestine? That I know about, no. Okay. Other than... The conversation a Teamster Mobilized brother had with the general president and uh, last month's uh, local 396 general membership meeting. But as an official statement, nothing. My name is Ahlam Akhazam. I'm a professor of media studies at Cal State San Bernardino. I'm the co-chair of the Palestine Arab and Muslim Caucus, which is part of the Council of Racial and Social Justice of our union, California Faculty Association, or CFA. And we represent one of the largest public institution unions in the United States with about 29,000 faculty members. Comrades, 126 days of non-stop televised genocide in Gaza. Joined over 12,000 Palestinian children killed by Israeli terrorists. One more war crime that we are supporting in this country with our tax money because of our genocidal president. Shame! On October 16, the Palestinian trade unions called on the world to end arming Israel and stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. At that time, the union was horrified by the 6,000 bombs that Israel dropped on Gaza. Imagine! that by the end of December, Israel had dropped 29,000 bombs on the most densely populated region in the world. And today, we don't even know how many more bombs have been dropped. But our faculty union, CFA members, started a historical strike on January 22nd because we were told over and over that there was no money for fair wages, decent working conditions, no money for even lactation stations for working mothers.
that we need more tuition hikes for our struggling students. The Biden administration was capable of and willing to send $14 billion raining death and destruction on the heads of innocent Palestinians in Gaza. Over $60 billion for another proxy war in Ukraine. Imagine if we got $1 billion of these for our struggling families in California. In his October 19th announcement, Biden made it clear that he was serving the interests of the military-industrial complex when he said that this was not a free giveaway, but to replenish our own stockpiles of weapons. As war criminals of Israel announced their land invasion of Rafah, where half of the population of Gaza have been forced out of their homes two days ago, this genocide is committed by our money. We are now the biggest supporters of terrorism in the world, most of our elected officials, and unfortunately even our CFA union leadership, who have been trying to silence us, the damn caucus, and censor our activists for Palestine in all their might. Citing money and loss of membership dues as the reason they can't allow the damn caucus to pass a resolution for ceasefire. Their silence on Palestine and the genocide is deafening. It's aiding in killing more and more innocent Palestinians. We come here to join you all as rank and file, not as CFA leadership, who accepted an unfair tentative agreement by the CSU and ended a historical strike in just one day. If you are a CSU employee, please vote no on the tentative agreement. Vote no on genocidal jokes. Ceasefire now and free Palestine. Hi, I'm a member of UTLA, retired, and I am so disappointed that our House of Rep has not agreed and voted for a ceasefire. No matter if you're Jewish or Palestinian, it doesn't matter. This is genocide. And we have to stop this, and we have to understand that we cannot bomb our way into peace. It just doesn't work. We need to stop this horrible, horrible. As teachers, we should understand that these are families, our children that are impacted. Families here in our schools are impacted. We must understand that and stop. Thank you. And is there any movement of rank-and-file members of UTLA for a ceasefire? Yes, we've submitted, Human Rights Committee uh, of UTLA has submitted uh, several resolutions. The last one was to uh, cease fire in Palestine, in Israel, to return the hostages. And, you know, who could disagree with any of that? I don't understand. We also have rank-and-file LA educators for ceasefire and I believe you know they're quite strong they're a a large body and we're just gonna keep working on this because but we need families we need you know people that are impacted by the our union you know the, the people that were out there with our union getting a bargain you know are doing our bargaining call and let teachers union know This is unacceptable. We've got to care about all humanity. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles.
According to a report by the consumer advocacy group CalPERG, 157,385 tons of plastic bag waste was discarded in California in 2014, the year the single-use plastic bag ban was passed. Ten years later, however, the tonnage of discarded plastic bags had skyrocketed to almost double, 231,072 tons. Even accounting for an increase in population, the number rose from four tons per 1,000 people in 2014 to almost six tons per 1,000 people in 2022. The problem, it turns out, was a section of the law that allowed grocery stores and large retailers to provide thicker, heavier, weight plastic bags to customers for the price of a dime. It was a gaping hole, said Mark Gold, director of Water Scarcity Solutions, Environmental Health at the Natural Resources Defense Council, who worked on the original legislation called SB 270, while he was with the organization Heal the Bay. These so-called reusable bags are made from a material known as HDPE, which is thicker and heavier than the LDPE plastic bags of yore. And although both materials can be recycled, and in commercial and agricultural settings sometimes are, they are generally not recycled in residential and consumer settings. Now California legislators are hoping to correct that error by passing a law that closes that loophole and bans those thick plastic bags offered at the checkout line. Thick plastic bags are not what consumers demanded when they overwhelmingly voted to support California's bag ban at the ballot box when the policy was challenged. Senator Ben Allen, a Democrat from Santa Monica, told reporters, Californians want less plastic, not more. Plastic has been found everywhere scientists have looked, from the deepest oceanic trenches to the highest alpine peaks. Petroleum-based plastics do not biodegrade. Over time, they break down into smaller and smaller pieces known as microplastics, microfibers, and nanoplastics that have been found in household dust drinking water, as well as human tissue and blood. These small plastic pieces also carry chemicals and heavy metals known to cause illness and disease. Five trillion plastic bags are used every year across the globe. The average use time per bag is 12 minutes. Another approach was SB 54, a bill that Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law in 2022. That sweeping law seeks to phase out single-use plastics through a policy concept known as extended, product, extended producer responsibility, which shifts the onus of waste from consumers, towns, and cities to companies manufacturing products with environmental impacts. The legislation requires that by January 1st, 2028, at least 30% of plastic items sold, distributed, or imported into California be recyclable. By 2032, that number rises to 65%. It also calls for a 25% reduction in single-use plastic waste.
Waymo car went up in flames in San Francisco's Chinatown after a crowd surrounded it, scrawled graffiti, smashed windows, and then threw fireworks inside the driverless vehicle in the middle of a crowded street Saturday night. Nobody was in the car, and no injuries were reported, police and company officials said. Videos posted on social show someone using a skateboard to crush the white Jaguar's windows as the car's rooftop sensors continue to turn. This incident is part of a rising trend of hostility towards autonomous vehicles, highlighted by an, individu- highlighted by an individual late last year on X. Quote, the, AI, the AI crusades have begun. Tensions over hundreds of driverless cars have risen since a driverless cruise car owned by General Motors hit a woman in downtown San Francisco, pinned her underneath, and dragged her, almost killing her. The incident eventually forced Cruise to suspend operations, while its competitor, Google-owned Waymo, has marched their expansion forward, recently arriving in Los Angeles to wary officials and worried taxi and truck drivers. A limited number of Waymo driverless cars are currently on Los Angeles streets. But Waymo has asked the California Public Utilities Commission for license to expand its fleet to be fully operational in Los Angeles. Concerned that the robo-taxis could be dangerous, Mayor Karen Bass asked regulators in November to increase their scrutiny and said the city should have a say in how they are regulated. At At the time, she said one of the Waymo driverless cars operating in Los Angeles had failed to initially stop for a traffic officer at Beaudry Avenue and Wilshire Boulevard on August 3rd, 2023. The officer had been signaling east and westbound traffic to come to a stop. There were no injuries reported. Since then, union and local officials have been ratcheting up pressure on the company. Earlier this month, the head of the city's firefighters union appeared with other local officials on the steps of City Hall, backing legislation introduced by California State Senator Dave Cortez from San Jose that would give local officials more control of autonomous vehicles. Cortez said not only is he concerned about the vehicle's ability to comply with local laws, but also the threat by by what they pose to taxi drivers. If we don't learn to move quickly with our laws and in terms of protecting jobs with these laws, we're going to end up with the greatest depression I think this country has ever seen, he said during the conference. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. And it is again time for our fun fun drive. The time where you get the time where you give back. This probably is not your first time listening to Rebel Alliance News. We are working every day. For free, gathering the news so you can be informed, not by infotainment that other stations are bringing you, but by real, uncensored, hard-hitting news. We can do this because we don't take money from large corporations like NPR does. We are truly independent. You're our sponsors. Your donation helps us to keep going, and it's more needed than ever. We offer you the fruits of our labor in an amazing best-of compilation on a USB stick, KPFK and Pacifica has collected the voices of dissent, of conscience, the voices for human rights against racism for over six decades. 
This is an archive you can get nowhere else. It can be yours for only $250. Please get it for yourself, for your children, your school, your community. Share this knowledge that many media outlets want to condemn to the memory of whole of history. Please go to your phones and call 818-985-5735 and say you want to donate to Rebel Alliance News. If you want to keep us on the air, please donate now. 818-985-5735 or go online at www.kpfk.org so that you will still know tomorrow what's going on in this city, this country, and the world. Do it for your kids. Save and protect independent media. We are the last holdout. Call 818-985-5735 and donate now. And if you're one of the lucky people who can afford a little more, donate more because many of us are hurting and cannot donate, even if they wanted to. Let's stand together and keep this amazing radio station going. Thank you all so much. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. A poll conducted in the wake of probably the worst week of Biden's presidency has found that a whopping 86% of Americans do not feel Joe Biden is in good enough mental shape to serve another term. The poll found that 73% of Democrats think Biden is too old to serve, and a whopping 91% of independents feel the same way. The poll by ABC News, Ipsos, was carried out Saturday after the special counsel report that described Biden as an, quote, elderly man with a poor memory, and after he ended up angrily yelling at reporters for asking questions about the issue. Special counsel Robert Herr had released a report last Thursday that found evidence that President Joe Biden willfully retained and shared highly classified information when he was a private citizen, including about military and foreign policy in Afghanistan. Despite this finding, Special Counsel Herr concluded that criminal charges were not warranted since Biden's actions had occurred as a result of an innocent senior moment. It was a difficult week for the Democratic Party, to say the least. Brianna Joy Gray and Robbie Suave have the story. It was going to be a problem for Biden if he keeps having these senior moments. Well, he did it again. At two fundraising events, Biden said German Chancellor Helmut Kohl was with him on his first foreign trip as president. Again, Angela Merkel was German chancellor at the time, and Kohl had died in 2017. Fox News' Peter Ducey asked White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre about the first incident where Biden confused current French President Emmanuel Macron with the deceased former French President Francois Mitterrand. How is President Biden ever going to convince the three-quarters of voters who are worried about his physical and mental health that he is okay, even though in Las Vegas he told a story about recently talking to a French president who died in 1996. I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole with you, Why? sir. What is We're going to go. Hole? Go ahead. He said go he ahead. talked to Mitterrand. Go ahead. You saw Spain. the president in Vegas, in California. You've seen the president in South Carolina. You saw him in Michigan. I'll just leave it there. Nancy Pelosi also having a bad time. The former House Speaker seemed visibly angry as she was confronted by angry pro-Palestinian protesters once again, this time in the halls of a congressional office building. Don't call us Russian apologists or Chinese apologists. Are you going to vote no on the money? And we don't want you giving any more.
more money to Israel. You have Nancy Pelosi defending against a volley of criticisms, not just about Israel-Palestine, but you could also hear criticisms about how much money her stock portfolio is making and her history of resistance to legislation that would make it less easy for elected officials to do insider trading and have greater returns than the average investor. Of course, Israel-Palestine is an issue that is not just flagging Nancy Pelosi, but the Biden administration and the entire Democratic Party is trying to figure out what to do about the fact that so many voters, especially in crucial states like Michigan, see this as a red line of sorts and that they are making it increasingly ambiguous, the differences between Republicans and Democrats. Joe Biden came under hot fire for some remarks about abortion recently. That's seen as a tentpole issue that's going to keep the Democratic coalition together. And if Biden wins, it will likely be because of that issue. But he said, I'm a Catholic. I don't want to see abortion on demand. But of course, I was upset with the Dobb decision. Well, abortion on demand is, of course, language that anti-choice advocates mm. use for their position. And people are like, this is the one thing that's going to save your campaign. You can't even give a full-throated defense of abortion. I mean, what is going on here? And again, we have the same issue where he's uh, misremembering his right. various European heads of state. Right. Uh, again, another example, and this is starting to call to mind. I'm sorry to keep saying this. Elderly people we've known in our lives when they start getting dates and people confused in this exact way this is starting to be telltale signs of some of a concerning trajectory in his ability to recall basic facts and anecdotes i don't know why corinne jean pierre got so mad at ducey for asking a totally fair question about now his repeated habit of misremembering these things I, her answer was well you've seen him in all these places i don't even know what that means well yes we've seen him all over the place and we've seen him say yeah. a lot of things that make absolutely <laughs> no sense what are you talking right, about right he, he stood up and did sentences in the right order at this one location so you shouldn't have any questions yeah. about the gap the question is is he over time right is the percentage of times where he doesn't really know what he's talking about and he's confused and disoriented and can't finish his sentences and is mumbling and is getting people's names wrong is that that increasing over time and are they going to respond to that by keeping him you know more locked up in the basement etc as he's supposed to be doing this campaign he's not doing the super bowl interview as mm -hmm. we discussed for second year in a row i think they're afraid to risk having the American people see what bad shape he's actually in. And remember, there was an off-ramp for all of this. We knew a year ago that the American public didn't want another Biden-Trump mashup, and there was an opportunity to have a real primary, and there was an opportunity to give the other people running in this race a real shot, even if the Democratic Party didn't want to open that door, mainstream left-leaning news, MSNBC, CNN, could have given opportunities to folks like Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson to have the platform to at least let the voters see what the options were. And now we're in a situation where you can see why the Democratic Party would want to double down. And it is, I think, a kind of poetic justice, something kind of karmic about being at a moment where the Democratic Party is in an obvious crisis and having now these opponents of his that offered some degree of promise about a different kind of politics, a more youthful kind of politics, a kind of politics that was more in line with what the American people want, advancing policies like Medicare for All. I think Marion Williamson is the last Medicare for All candidate standing, someone who advocated for a peace department as instead of a war department, dropping out of the race at this juncture. It says really, I think, negative and dispiriting things about the real choices that are presented to the American Dean. people. To this topic, we have the following commentary by Caitlin Johnstone, an award-winning Australian journalist. 
So it turns out the dementia symptoms Biden's supporters have long dismissed as a stutter are actually exactly what they look like. The special counsel assigned to investigate Joe Biden for mishandling classified documents reports that investigators, quote, uncovered evidence that President Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified materials after his vice presidency when he was a private citizen, end quote, but concludes that, quote, no criminal charges are warranted in this matter, which normally would be cause for a sigh of relief by this administration and its supporters, except that among the reasons given for this conclusion is that the president has gone senile. Quote, we have also considered that at trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury as he did during our interview of him as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory, end quote. Special counsel Robert Herr writes to Attorney General Merrick Garland saying that, quote, Mr. Biden's memory was significantly limited both during his recorded interviews with the ghostwriter in 2017 and in his interview with our office in 2023. Her reports further that in interviews, Biden could not even remember things as fundamental as the years of his term as vice president or when his son Beau died. Her also writes that Biden's memory had gotten worse between the aforementioned recorded 2017 interviews and this interviews with the president last year. In short, the president's brain does not work. It's shot. The leader of the free world has rusted out gray matter. If you were still laboring under the delusion that it matters who the U.S. president is, the fact that an actual literal dementia patient has held that office for three years now should dispel that notion once and for all. The U.S. empire has been marching along in exactly the same way it was before Biden took office, completely unhindered by the fact that the person who's supposedly calling the shots is in a state of degenerative neurological freefall. Literally anyone could hold that office and it would make no meaningful difference in the way the U.S. empire is run. The position which Americans hold elections over in the belief that it could bring That doesn't mean that there's, there's no way out of this mess. Just that there's no way out of this mess that involves voting. We're already seeing pro-Palestine activists blocking the operations of Israeli weapons dealers. And the push to educate and inform the public about what's happening in Gaza has caused Israel to lose control of the narrative so severely that it's now resorting to desperate online influence operations. Nonviolent measures like this can be implemented across the board to bring about the end of the imperial power structure. Once enough people begin turning against the empire, using the power of our numbers to force real change will quickly move from impossible to possible to likely to inevitable. But we've got to stop laughing all we, but we've got to stop hanging all our hopes on the electoral system first. Every four years, we see American attention get sucked up into this empty puppet show about which soulless empire manager 
should be the temporary official figurehead at the front desk of the permanent imperial machine. And if you want to vote, by all means, go ahead and vote. But don't let that performance ritual distract you from the real project to wake up our fellow humans and begin forcing real change. This was a commentary by Caitlin Johnston, an award-winning Australian journalist. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In the face of total failure of diplomacy by the U.S. and Western allies as they cut off communication with Russian President Vladimir Putin, right-wing journalist Tucker Carlson traveled to Russia to interview the Russian president. This sent the mainstream media into hysterics, most of, most of, some, most of whom have called for the journalist to face sanctions or even being barred from re-entering the U.S., while we never had Tucker Carlson on this news show before, he deserves credit for arranging an interview that has reopened an important door, a door into the Russian view of things, into their history and their political reasoning that we cannot afford to ignore. Here's Tucker Carlson in his own words just before the historic interview, explaining why he spoke to Putin. After Tucker, we will hear from former CIA analyst Larry Johnson and Andrew Neapolitano, discuss why this interview shows that Western mainstream media is on their way out. But first, here's Tucker Carlson. Here's why we're doing it. First, because it's our job. We're in journalism. Our duty is to inform people. Two years into a war that's reshaping the entire world, most Americans are not informed. They have no real idea what's happening in this region, here in Russia or 600 miles away in Ukraine. But they should know. They're paying for much of it in ways they might not fully yet perceive. The war in Ukraine is a human disaster. It's left hundreds of thousands of people dead, an entire generation of young Ukrainians, and it's depopulated the largest country in Europe. But the long-term effects are even more profound. This war has utterly reshaped the global military and trade alliances, and the sanctions that followed have as well. And in total, they have upended the world economy. The post-World War II economic order, the system that guaranteed prosperity in the West for more than 80 years, is coming apart very fast, and along with it, the dominance of the U.S. dollar. These are not small changes. They are history-altering developments. They will define the lives of our grandchildren. Most of the world understands this perfectly well. They can see it. Ask anyone in Asia or the Middle East what the future looks like. And yet the populations of the English-speaking countries seem mostly unaware. They think that as nothing has really changed. And they think that because no one has told them the truth. Their media outlets are corrupt. They lie to their readers and viewers. And they do that mostly by omission. For example, since the day the war in Ukraine began, American media outlets have spoken to scores of people from Ukraine, and they have done scores of interviews with Ukrainian President Zelensky. But the interviews he's already done in the United States are not traditional interviews. They are fawning pep sessions specifically designed to amplify Zelensky's demand that the U.S. enter more deeply into a war in Eastern Europe and pay for it. That is not journalism. It is government propaganda, propaganda of the ugliest kind, the kind that kills people. At the same time, our politicians and media outlets have been doing this, promoting a foreign leader like he's a new consumer brand. Not a single Western journalist has bothered to interview the president of the other country involved in this conflict, Vladimir Putin. 
Most Americans have no idea why Putin invaded Ukraine or what his goals are now. They've never heard his voice. That's wrong. Americans have a right to know all they can about a war they're implicated in. And we have the right to tell them about it because we are Americans too. Freedom of speech is our birthright. We were born with the right to say what we believe. That right cannot be taken away no matter who is in the White House, but they're trying anyway. Almost three years ago, the Biden administration illegally spied on our text messages and then leaked the contents to their servants in the news media. They did this in order to stop a Putin interview that we were planning. Last month, we're pretty certain they did exactly the same thing once again. But this time, we came to Moscow anyway. We are not here because we love Vladimir Putin. We are here because we love the United States. And we want it to remain prosperous and free. We paid for this trip ourselves. We took no money from any government or group. Nor are we charging people to see the interview. It is not behind a paywall. Anyone can watch the entire thing, shot live to tape and unedited, on our website. Western governments, by contrast, will certainly do their best to censor this video because they are afraid of information they can't control. But you have no reason to be afraid of it. We are urging you to watch it. You should know as much as you can. And then, like a free citizen and not a slave, you can decide for yourself. I'm sure you were not surprised that mainstream media has trashed the Tucker Carlson uh, interview referred to him as a useful idiot. It wasn't just Hillary Clinton. She may have been the first one that said that, but a lot of the others picked up on it. Brett Stevens of the New York Times on CNN. Tell us about the numbers who watched that interview, what it's up to now, compared to the numbers who watched the trashers or the ignorers. Yeah, so I started thinking about the ratings. I said, yeah, I wonder... You know, I, I was I heard Hillary Clinton and then Aaron Burnett. He's a tool of Putin. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, the TV industry is about ratings, even the Internet. I mean, you, you know, you've got 300,000 people uh, subscribed to you or heading towards that direction. And so people want numbers. It, it makes a difference. So I started thinking about it and I said, hey, let's let's look at all the late night comedy shows. So Colbert, Jimmy Kimmel, uh, Fallon and, and Greg Gutfeld. And then I said. And, and let's look at the top-rated TV shows uh, on, on cable news. So MSNBC, Fox, CNN. I went through, pulled the ratings for those. And I said, hey, and for Grins, let's pull in the nightly ratings for nightly news on the TV networks, ABC, CBS, NBC. And I added all the numbers up. <laughs> 32 million total for all. 32 million. And just to put that into context, In August of 1968, Walter Cronkite alone at CBS had 28 million viewers of his news program every night. 28. And so here are all these other networks. They can barely scrabble together uh, 32 million. Aaron Burnett's show, top rated on CNN, by God, 733,000. That was it. On TV, with all the money they're paying her and all the the money that goes into the overhead, that's ridiculous. Then I looked at Tucker's numbers. Last I saw, it was $195 million, And that was just on the Twitter platform. That doesn't include YouTube. I saw one YouTube channel with over a million. What this demonstrates is that the legacy media, including the, you know, let's go, the relatively recently arrived cable channels, they're history. They're no longer relevant. They're relevant only to themselves. They speak in an echo chamber. And that's why they felt compelled to attack Tucker 
And they never attacked him on the substance. They always tried to insult him. I mean, just like when Cy Hirsch scooped the media on what really happened at Nord Stream, they're bitter that somebody else beat them uh, to the punch. Who wouldn't want one of their uh, anchors to interview uh, Vladimir Putin? This wasn't possible 20 years ago. Right. It is possible now. And it is changing because they can no longer control the narrative. White House says they're not interested in, uh, in talking to uh, President Putin. Isn't it interesting that the <clears throat> diplomacy has sunk to such a terrible level that the president of Russia has to go on the Internet and say, I'll talk to him if he stops uh, supplying the weapons that are killing my people. And of course, Joe Biden's people say we're not going to talk to him. Rebel Alliance News. Another round of shellings of civilians in Donbass by the U.S.-backed Kiev forces, an eyewitness tells the story. A special session of the U.N. Security Council was convened Monday at U.N. headquarters in New York. The meeting was called at the request of the Russian Federation. The council heard from Steve Sweeney, a Western reporter with RT who's been covering the Ukraine war from the city of Donetsk. But unlike his colleagues at Western outlets like CNN, MSNBC, and Fox, Sweeney reported on what he has actually seen on the ground during his time in Ukraine. I'm speaking to you here from the city of Donetsk and in the background now I can hear the familiar sounds of artillery fire. The blasts from incoming often western supplied missiles, alerts from the menace of drones that strike fear into the residents here. Now we hear those sounds because of the failure of the Minsk agreements. Those accords should have been the framework that brought peace to the region, end to aggression and the suffering of the civilian population. It was very hard to sell those accords to the people here, they had to be persuaded to stay within a federated Ukraine with more autonomy, with the rights to speak Russian, for many their mother tongue, with the right to practice their language, their cultures and their traditions without fear. But they accepted it. They believed the guarantees that were offered by France and Germany, along with the Kiev government. But time has proved that they were wrong to do so. We now know that France and Germany had no intention of abiding by Minsk I or Minsk II. We heard this from the horse's mouths themselves. The failure of Minsk is also your failure. Nations not united and a council that provides no security. This is how the people on the ground see you when I spoke to them, on which I'll expand later. As we know, before February 2022, there was a road to peace and a road to war. But unfortunately, many of the most powerful nations on the planet chose the latter. They brought war to some of the world's poorest people and in the most brutal way imaginable. Now, the conflict didn't start in 2022 for the people of Donbass. It started back in 2014 when the Ukrainian government launched airstrikes on its own people in Lugansk, when neo-Nazi militias patrolled and controlled the streets, killing at will and with impunity. The failure of Minsk has real-life consequences, with homes, hospitals and infrastructure destroyed, as thousands dead lie dead as a result. And all of those deaths could have been avoided. But behind those statistics lie families, people who are loved, people with names, killed in a terror attack in the Kievsky district of Donetsk just a few weeks ago. Ukrainian forces fired weapons, Western supplied weapons, into a busy marketplace. 27 people were massacred, old men and old women selling homemade items. 
the side of the road, women baking bread. The first thing I saw when I arrived on the scene was a babushka sliced in half. Next to her, an elderly man lay with blood streaming from his head, staining the snow red. Killed on a Sunday morning, on a bright, clear day. Now, of course, I expect the usual platitudes that Russia is responsible for the killing, that it is the aggressor. Stock answers, superficial, and an insult to the memory of the dead, and an insult to those living. And they are not afraid of Vladimir Putin. They're not afraid of Russia, who they see as protecting them from a potential genocide, the same that you're failing to stop in Gaza. They are afraid of you, of the member states sitting around this table, who instead of talking about peace, about security, about an end to conflict, agree more money and more arms to Ukraine to rain down on their communities. And Ukraine constantly appeals to the West, saying it has no ammunition to fight with, that it needs weapons, aircraft, money. Yet despite this, there seems to be a never-ending supply when it comes to attacks on civilians. Now, we used to speak about indiscriminate firing into residential areas, but in the space of a few weeks, we saw 27 people killed, 28 people killed in a bakery in Lysychansk. We also saw an attempt to strike the palace of culture here in Donetsk when people were gathered there for an event with an emergency worker, Nikita Danilov, killed. These are deliberate acts of terror designed for maximum casualties and to break the will of the people. But these are not simply Ukrainian acts of terror. They are Western-sponsored war crimes and they happen here on a daily basis. The arms that you supply are not used against the Russian armed forces. A marketplace is not a military base. A babushka selling homemade jam is not a soldier. Last September, I attended the scene of attack in which an AGM-88 harm missile destroyed a home in a poor residential area. Now, I found the remnants of the missile used in that attack. Now, these are missiles that are usually used to take out air defences or the like. And it was made in the United States with an expiry date, 31st of March, 1991. Out-of-date stock being rushed to the front line. Now, this was just a week after the exact same missile, the AGM-88 harm, crashed into a babushka's living room on the ninth floor of an apartment block. She was killed as her daughter and her granddaughter slept in a room next door. Children have the same hopes and dreams here as those in every country across the world. The children of Donetsk are having those hopes shattered, their dreams stolen by NATO, by the West, and the failures of the UN Security Council. Cluster munitions have also now become a familiar sound in these areas. Days after the US authorised their use, they claimed their first civilian victim, journalist Rostislav Zhirovlev. He was killed as his car was struck, ironically, as he was part of a group of journalists that have been reporting on the use of cluster munitions on civilian areas in Zaporozhye. Condemned by UNESCO and the International Federation of Journalists, who called for a independent probe. His death was celebrated by the National Union of Journalists of Ukraine, who welcomed the demise of a Kremlin propagandist. Another war crime unpunished. Last year, the peace of a Monday morning was shattered by a HIMARS attack in Donetsk City, striking a passenger bus during rush hour, destroying civilian homes. Internationally banned petrol mines litter the streets and continue to maim and wound civilians. Shops display adverts warning people to remain vigilant, and people are, are advised not to walk on the grass. Drones are now more of a menace as well. 97 were shot down over Donetsk City and Makievka in just three days. And in January alone, 966 drones were taken down over Donetsk, Makievka and Gorlovka. Many are supplied through crowdsourcing platforms such as Fundraiser, who despite being alerted to the fact that they are used against civilians, continue to facilitate the purchase of these killer drones. One British mercenary with links to intelligence services even boasts about the UAV 
attack. And he has killed Russians directly and indirectly, yet he is allowed to move in and out of Britain freely. Much of the community here in Donetsk lives without hot water, with water only supplied on certain days, and constant electricity blackouts, because Ukraine targets the city's infrastructure, power stations, and water supply. What happened there is a war crime and an act of terror, just one of many that stretch back over a decade, unreported and carried out with impunity. The people describe living here as Donetsk roulette, not knowing whether they are going to live or they're going to die. But they've had enough. They just want it to stop. You have the ability to make it happen. You can put this to an end. Use the anniversary of Minsk to set out a path to end the conflict, end the cycle of terror, the deaths of thousands upon thousands of people. Every weapon supplied by the country sitting around this table takes us a step further away from peace in a conflict that Ukraine simply cannot win. Thank you. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, here are your international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society says more than 100 people, including children, were killed overnight in airstrikes in the border city of Rafah in the Gaza Strip. The salvos come as the IDF says it used the attack as cover to rescue hostages in the enclave. Telesur correspondent Noor Harazin reports from Rafah. An intense night of Israeli attacks on the city of Rafah where more than 100 Palestinians uh, were killed in less than half an hour of Israeli attacks on uh, Rafah. The Israeli media said that this was an operation to free two of the Israeli hostages that uh, were imprisoned by uh, Hamas. Right now I am standing in a Shabura neighborhood and it is a densely populated area. Behind me is one of the homes that were actually targeted overnight and this is a residential uh, two stores a home and it was filled not only with the families the owners of the home al-masri family but also with displaced uh, people a number of people were killed and injured in this uh, israeli attack on the al-masri home and this is not the only uh, attack that targeted a residential civilian home in rafah overnight but we are talking about dozens of uh, homes uh, where more than 100 people were killed. And this number actually does not even include those who, until now, the paramedics and the rescue teams are trying to evacuate from under the rubble. Until now, we can clearly hear the voices, the sounds of the Israeli drones and the Israeli warplanes hovering over uh, Rafah. Rafah is the supposed to be the green safest area for Palestinians here in Gaza. Now Palestinians, now displaced people in Gaza have reached a point where they actually don't know what to do. Dr. Omar Abdelmanan with Health Workers for Palestine provides further analysis. The situation is absolutely catastrophic. So uh, we have seen overnight air raids that have resulted in at least 100 deaths. This is sources on the ground speaking to medics in the hospitals that are dealing with the injuries and the casualties that are coming through the door. Um, Last night was shock and awe. It was basically, you know, what I 
recall from my childhood was the equivalent of what happened in Baghdad before Iraq was um, invaded by ground force. You could see that they were targeting healthcare facilities, they are targeting civilians, they are going for the most densely populated areas to kill as many people as possible. And these images, horrific images on our screens are, you know, just the reflection of what we are seeing, women, children, men being killed in mass or being pushed out from one safe zone to the next safe zone. There is no safe area in Gaza. Make no mistake, they are pushing these people either out into the Sinai Desert at Egypt's expense, or they are leaving them to drown in the Mediterranean. There is no other escape from Gaza, and that is a reality for people there day to day. It is an absolutely apocalyptic scenario. Unfortunately, I am not surprised. I have been waiting for this day knowing that this will happen unless the West starts to interject. And unfortunately, the reality is all of the Western world's democratic values and calls for humanity and, you know, uh, moral high ground are now sitting under the rubble of Gaza. They have failed the people of Palestine. They have failed the people of Gaza and they have failed our children and grandchildren. And now it is time for change, a big, big change from people on the ground who are sick and tired of watching the double standards, the continual lies, the continual, continual atrocities happening live on our TV screens whilst we feel impotent and unable to do anything. And you've been listening again to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. Please support our nightly news show with by telling your friends and family, and by donating to us. Please call 818-985-5735 and mention that you donate specifically to Rebel Alliance News. We need to earn your our keep and show that you're listening. We've been bringing you breaking news and analysis for over a year now, and after 10 years without LA-produced local news. Our team is working very hard every day for free, but we need to keep the lights on and pay for the station signal. So please call 818-985-5735 or go online to kpfk.org and become a member of our Sustainer Circle by donating $25, $50, or $100 a month or gladly more and join our KPFK family. Rebel Alliance News thanks our engineer Wendell Handy and all tireless contributors like Don DeBar, Paulina Vasiliev, Peter Rot. Siopo, and our producer, Ziri Rideau. You can also listen to us on the KPFK Rebel Alliance News Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our, re- our or you can listen to us on our website at rebelalliancenews.org. Coming up next is IMRU. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow at 6 p.m. I hope you will join us again. I'm Hunter Green. I'm Armistead Maupin, author of Tales of the City. IMRU Radio Magazine has been the voice of the LGBT community in Southern California since 1974. And you can listen every Monday night from 7 to 8 p.m. right here on KPFK. IMRU, IMRU.
I was turning the radio dial in the car, trying to find something other than uh, the usual dribble and fluff and nothingness on the rest of the airwaves. And I just uh, stumbled across KPFK, and I was just drawn to it like a magnet, and I was just listening to it intently. And all of a sudden, 